in the Navy, they're taught the best way to fight a storm or a hurricane was just to move out to sea and anchor deep. Hi, this is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. There are times in our lives when we're caught in storms. Maybe someone listening is going through that right now. The best way to fight a storm is to anchor deep. Join us as we explore this year's theme and see how we have hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure in Christ. We hope you enjoy. All right, amen. What a great video, huh? Like as I was sitting there just thinking of the hope and freedom and forgiveness and all those other words that they were using in that, uh, that video. Great video. So I'm really excited to preach today's sermon. I don't know why this one was different than sometimes, but I'm just going to tell you, I had fun writing the sermon for today. Like, I just really enjoyed it. And so hopefully, hopefully that, you know, that, I don't know, it's a sign of something. Um, so last, last December, uh, my wife, Christine, and I, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary and uh, quite an accomplishment for my wife. Uh, to put up with me for 30 years. <clears throat> yes. Yes, she deserves all the, all the praise and the glory. So um, anyway, we spent a couple of days in Carlsbad. And so Carlsbad is just a beautiful place. And we had a great time. Uh, just beautiful. Uh, we went on what they called a SEAL tour, which is a bit deceptive. Because we got on this little vehicle. And the first thing the lady says is, we will not be seeing any SEALs. And I'm like, yeah, you got my money, you got me sitting here, and now you're telling me I'm not going to see any SEALs? And she's like, no, SEAL, SEAL tour stands for Sea and Land. And so it was one of those vehicles where, you know, it, it drives like a truck, but then when you get the water, you could just ride right into the water. Now, that was fun. That was pretty cool, but I was hoping to see some SEALs. Now, they did take us to see some sea lions, and if I'm being completely honest, I don't know the difference between a seal and a sea lion, so it's all the same to me. But it was a fun trip. It was great. Uh, our oldest son lives in Carlsbad, and so it was great. We had dinner with him a couple of nights, and it was just a great trip. And, and I don't really remember if it was <clears throat> while we were there or when we came home, and I do not know what spurred this question on, but my wife asked me, she goes, John, what do you remember about our wedding? And I'm like, uh, well, give me a minute. And so actually, I was, now, I don't know if she was, but I was pretty impressed by how many things I remembered about our wedding day. Uh, I remembered the fact that, um, I don't know who was supposed to pick me up and take me to the church, but no one came to get me. Okay, so none of my groomsmen nor my best man uh, came to get me. And so I was at my parents' house, and a weird thing about just the neighborhood that my parents live in, um, like to walk to the church that we were getting married at was like four blocks away, but from my parents' back door, I could look out and see the church. And so I'm like, well, that's where I'm supposed to be. Is anyone coming to get me? And this was before anybody had anything called a cell phone or anything like that. And so I don't even know how somebody eventually came and got me, okay? But I remember like, why have groomsmen? Why have a best man? If I can't even count on them to get me to the wedding, okay? And so I remember that. I remember getting to the church. And after having just said that, I remember getting to the church and going, I got here too early. Okay, like I just feel like we, me and my groomsmen sat there, what seemed like for hours, waiting for the service. And I just remember going, 
okay, just a little while ago, I was like, where is everybody and why aren't they coming to get me? And I was like, man, they could have left me at home for like another two hours, okay? So I remember just sitting in a room which seemed like an eternity. Um, I remember, and I, listen, I got to be honest, we're recording this service and it's online, and so I, I just got to be careful the way I say this, but we had a song that we asked someone to sing for us at our wedding, and I did not recognize the song. Like I was standing up on the stage, and I was like, what is this being sung right now? What, what, what's going on here? And so I'm listening, and then I'm like struggling. I'm like trying to listen to the words. I'm like, oh, that is the song. But this isn't how it goes. And so I apologize to the person who sang that song if you happen to see this online, but it was not very good. Okay? It just was not very good. And so I remember that. I remember my three-year-old niece was our flower girl, and so she walked down the center aisle doing her job, dropping flowers, and then just a few minutes later, when, uh, when, when the bridal parties were supposed to be walking down the aisle, she was yelling to not step on the flowers, okay? So I, I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I'm pretty sure in our video you could probably hear a three-year-old screaming, don't step on the flowers, okay? Kind of a fun memory. Especially a fun memory to, to see my, my niece now, who's turning 34, and go, yeah, yeah, that was you, okay? Um, I, I also remember, so, you know, Pastor Rob's been our lead pastor for about six and a half years, for like 40 years before that. It was a gentleman named Glenn Kirby, and, you know, for 40 years, if you came to this church, you knew who Glenn Kirby was, and there's probably many of you in the room that have no idea who Glenn Kirby is, uh, but he did the wedding for Christina and I. And at that time, in the early 90s, he was kind of on a kick. And so at his wedding services, he would compare the couple to a biblical couple. Um, and so he did that quite a bit. I asked Rob and Lisa in the middle of first service, and they had no idea. They did not remember who Glenn uh, compared them to. But it was interesting. Glenn compared Christina and I to Mary and Joseph. Okay? Now... Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about Joseph. I thought that was an incredible compliment to my wife to be comparing her to Mary. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was a bad choice. I'm just saying, wow. But I can tell you this much during the service, my wife and I were thinking the same exact thing. He never bothered to tell the crowd that my wife was not pregnant. Okay. So like in comparing us to Mary and Joseph, he never said, by the way, Christina is not with child. And so, and like I said, I know we were both thinking that during the service, like, are you are going to, you are going to, nope, he didn't, okay? And so it was a beautiful day, and it was a long time ago, okay? Um, but I share that with you because today's story is a story about a wedding, and I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed preparing today's sermon is I'm like, man, for all the years that I have been a pastor and for all the years that I have preached sermons, I don't think I have ever preached a sermon on John chapter 2. And so it was just fun to read it and to read through it over and over again and kind of just break it down. And so if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 2. If you don't have one, the words will be on the screen. And the Bible I'm reading from is just a little bit different than what's on the screen, so I apologize for that. Uh, my fault. Uh, so John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. 
<clears throat> it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And so as I was reading this passage over and over again in preparation for this sermon, there were all kinds of questions, all kinds of questions that I had about it. Like I'm sitting there, and I don't know if you do this, Rob, but when you read the Bible, you ought to actually really critically think about what you're reading and really think about what's going on. And I started asking questions. Now, I got to tell you, there's a lot of questions that I have about the Bible that are unanswerable, and that's Okay. But as I was reading this passage, here's the questions, little trip inside my mind. First thing I thought of, what were Jesus and his disciples like at this wedding? Like, what was he and his crew all about? You know, did Jesus get a plus 12, you know, on the invitation? Was he walking around the life of the party screaming mazel tov to everybody? You know, I don't know. Was he in the back of the room, kind of like a godfather-like figure, just sitting there, Mr. Cool, and everybody is coming up to him? I just don't know. But I would love to know, like, what was Jesus like at this wedding? How was he behaving? Was he the first one out there on the dance floor? Was he not the one out there on the dance floor at all? What was he doing? Second thing I thought about as I was thinking about this, and my questions two and three kind of go together. How did Mary know that Jesus could do something about the wine situation? Like, how did she know he could help? And what goes right along with that is when did Mary find out that Jesus had special abilities? How did she know and when did she find out? Like did she come home one time when Jesus was little and he's like levitating the neighbor's dog in the air? I don't know. One time was she in the kitchen cooking a meal and she cut her hand and Jesus walks over and just touches her and heals her hand? Like how and when did she know that Jesus could do something? And so you all know me. I am famous for not being a big fan of Christmas and Christmas music. Music, But this week I was sitting there thinking about it. And I'm like thinking there's a song that was written like 30 years ago called Mary Did You Know. And as scary as this might be for some of you, I'm in my head. I'm not going to sing it out loud. But in my head I'm singing this song, you know. I'm really fighting it. I'm not going to sing it. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this song. But then I'm changing the words in my head. From Mary, did you know, but to Mary, when? Mary, when did you know? I want to know the answer to that. And, and so this week, I was, I was actually Tuesday morning. I'm getting ready to come to church, and I, I'm just in my room, and I'm getting stuff together, and I'm thinking about the sermon, thinking about working on it. And I've been thinking about how and when did Mary know, and then all of a sudden, an even bigger question hit me. When did Jesus know? <laughs> 
that he had the ability to do something about this. Like, when did Jesus realize that he could perform miracles? The Bible is so incredibly silent about this stuff. And so it just leaves us to have questions. Almost all it tells us about Jesus' early life is in Luke chapter 2. It tells the time of Jesus and his parents going to the temple. And as parents leave, Jesus is not with them. It takes them three days to figure out that Jesus isn't with them. Okay, I'm not sure what that says about their parenting. But it takes them three days. Jesus is at the temple. And Luke chapter 2 tells us that the teacher of the law, that they were amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers. That's really all we read about young Jesus. So when did Jesus know that he could do something? Like, I want answers to that question. I'm not getting answers to that question. I'm just not going to get them. Uh, the other question I have is this. Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Well, we know the end of the story. He turned the water into wine. My hour has not come, yet he changes the water into wine. So did Jesus' plans change because of Mary's expectations? Like, did Jesus' plans change because of Mary's expectation? You know, like he said, my time hasn't come. And is Mary looking at him like, oh, yes, it has. Okay? Like, you've been spending 30 years in my basement. It's time for you to go. It's go time. You know, like, I, I don't know. If you're a parent out there, you have, most of you have a look. Okay, my look won't work on anybody else's kids, but I have a look that works on my kids. Well, now that they're in their 20s, nothing works anymore. But, but when they were younger, if they were doing something, I just had to look at them a certain way, and they would stop. Okay, so did Mary look at Jesus and like, oh yeah, you're going to do it. Okay, and, and then why was Mary so confident that Jesus was going to do something about the wine situation? We go from hearing him say, my time has not yet come to Mary saying, do what he tells you. Okay? We just go right from there. And so again, I wonder, did Mary give him a look? And I, and I also wonder, did Jesus look back at her like only a child could and kind of shrug and be like, okay. You know? Like we don't know. But at some point, there had to have been some kind of communication that, that made Mary think, yes, he's going to do it. And so I want to know these questions. Um, the last one is like to all the teetotalers out there. How do you explain Jesus turning water into wine? Okay, now I'm not recommending the use of alcohol. I'm not recommending drinking. But it just seems a little odd to me that the first miracle is turning water into wine. So these are some questions that I have. So as I was thinking about this sermon, you know, Pastor Rob likes to start his sermons with background and telling you guys about the background. So some background for our pastors today is this. Cana and Galilee... It's just a few miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Some books say that it's like four miles away. Some books say it's like 10 miles away. I don't know the difference. I don't know which one is right. I've never been there. Okay? But they were talking about how it's close enough to where Jesus probably would have spent quite a bit of time in Cana and Galilee. So it wasn't that far away. The second thing is, you know, we don't know who this wedding couple are, but quite a few things that I read this week suggested that it's very possible that the wedding couple was part of Jesus' family. And sometimes I just don't even think about that. I don't even think about the idea that Jesus might have had an extended family. Like it could have been his cousin or whatever. Like why else and how else would you explain Mary's involvement? Why else would you, how else would you explain Mary being so concerned about them running out of wine? But it's fun to think of Jesus, you know, at a family member's wedding. More importantly, no matter who they are, 
whether they're related to Jesus or not, it would have been a pretty big humiliation for them to run out of wine. You know, a wedding at that time is a multi-day party, a multi-day feast. And one of the commentaries I read said, for a Jewish feast, wine was essential. Without wine, there is no joy. And I'm not a wine guy, but it definitely was a big deal for them. And, and so that, it was a big deal for them to run out of the wine. The last thing I want to mention before we get back to the actual passage is this. So in the version I, in the NIV, the old NIV, I guess is what it's called, my version says dear woman. The version we put up on the screen here just says woman. And that sounds kind of cold, doesn't it? Sounds, sounds kind of cold. Uh, matter of fact, like my mom was in first service, but when I'm being a jerk, which is most days, um, I just call her mother. Okay, because it doesn't sound very, now I love my mother, but I really enjoy calling her mother. Okay? And so this passage, when Jesus says woman, it can seem kind of cold. But, you know, part of the problem is when you translate from a different language into English. And what you need to understand is, you know what? Jesus wasn't being disrespectful to his mother in this passage. As a matter of fact, later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, as Jesus is on the cross, and he's looking down from the cross, and there's his mother, and there's his disciple John, when he says to them, woman, this is your son, it's the same word that Jesus is using. And so there isn't any disrespect. As a matter of fact, I think in the newer NIV versions, they've made a footnote, because they're so concerned about people thinking this. They've made a footnote that says, basically, no disrespect was intended. And so I think that's important for us to understand. And so this series is anchored in red. So let's take a look briefly at the red letters of what Jesus said. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And what I want us to understand about this is, you know what? Jesus came, and he had a purpose, and he had a plan for what he was doing. Like, Jesus didn't just come, and it was all an accident. Or he was winging it. He was making it up as he went. He came with a purpose. You know, John three sixteen, maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible. But verse 17 is also a great one. They say this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know what? That was Jesus' purpose. That was Jesus' plan. Nothing else was going to get in the way of him fulfilling that purpose. Later on in Luke chapter 19, when we read the story of Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. If you went to children's Sunday school, you sang that song. Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says this. It says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this, this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus knew why I came. He came for a purpose, and that purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus has left you and I a purpose and a plan. And there's all kinds of things that, that we run after that we think are so important. And I'm not going to tell you all that they're not important at all, but there's so many things that we spend our lives struggling after and going after, and in the end, they don't matter. When I stand before the Lord, the size of my bank account isn't going to matter. When I stand before the Lord, the beauty of my home isn't going to matter. The, the immenseness or the greatness of the vehicles that I drive isn't going to matter. 
all that stuff isn't going to matter. Jesus left us telling us what our purpose was. In Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Jesus left us with a purpose to make disciples and to teach them so they could grow strong in their faith. And then right before he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you'll receive power when the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those verses are still what our purpose is today. Like, I don't know if you understand that that is still why we are here, to tell the world about the love of God. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is below that. That is why we are here. The next thing that Jesus says, he just says, fill the jars with water. I don't really have a lot of words to say about this. There's really not much to say other than, you know, if you read the little note there, between 20 and 30 gallons. So at minimum, Jesus gave them 120 gallons of the good stuff. Okay? 120 gallons of the good stuff. And so, you know, when we put Jesus in charge... There's plenty for everyone. And we put, we put Jesus in charge. There's plenty to go around. It made me think of there's two different stories of Jesus feeding people. The feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. One of the things that they have in common is this. Jesus feeds all these people miraculously. And in the end, what do they do? They're collecting leftovers. Okay? What that tells us is, you know what? With Jesus, there is always enough. There's always enough to go around. The third thing that he says is, he says now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so he's saying, hey, listen, take it to the guy who's in charge of the wine. Take it to the guy who's in charge of this party and let him see. And so he, as we read the story, he's amazed, okay, by what's going on there. Now, there's something else I want to draw your attention to before we look at some application. And it's not in red, but it's going to have to be okay. Because at the end of the verse, John kind of gives us a reason why this story is even in there. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs, of the signs to which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's the first of his miracles. And in the Gospels, we read all kinds of miracles that Jesus did. And he had lots of different reasons for them. Sometimes you would read about a miracle of Jesus, and it's because of the compassion he has for people. He sees them hurting. He sees them struggling. He sees them down and out. And he has compassion on them, and he performs a miracle. Sometimes there's people that maybe wouldn't normally get any help, and yet he sees their incredible faith, and Jesus goes, okay, because of your faith, I'm going to do this. But Jesus did this miracle to reveal God's glory. And he did this miracle so that his disciples, who were new to following him, would believe in him. And that's still what everything is all about, about revealing God's glory in this world, and helping people believe in him. And so what are some lessons that we can take away from this? The first one is this. Remember that this miracle took place at a wedding. It's not a crime to be happy. Okay, do you guys know that? It's okay to be happy. It's okay to come to church with a smile on your face and to be excited that you are here. Because, you know, I think there are some churches where it ain't no fun to go there, and everybody's angry and bitter and, and down, and they're crawling to Zion, okay? 
And yet I, I think, you know what, Jesus, Jesus probably had a good time at the wedding. And Jesus wasn't antisocial, and he wasn't a fuddy-duddy. He wasn't a curmudgeon or whatever other word you would use like that. Okay? As a matter of fact, I think God wants us to have an incredible life. A passage that Pastor Rob and I talk about all the time, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Like, I really believe that God wants us to enjoy life, to have an abundant life. That's why one of our core values at church here is fun. Okay, now everything can't be fun, but, but it's okay to be happy. It's okay to have fun. The second thing, and this, this might be the most important thing that you hear today. The most, this might be the most important thing is, you know what? When something went wrong, Mary turned to Jesus. Like when something went wrong, Mary knew where to go. This is so important because all kinds of people with all kinds of different issues come to Jesus for help. And we read that throughout the Gospels. And I'm embarrassed to say that there are so many times in my own life where I'm dealing with issues and Jesus is not the first place that I go. Like there are some times where I'll struggle with something for, for hours or days or weeks and then it's like, dummy, why not bring this to Jesus? Give it to him. And so God wants us. That's what he wants from us. When something goes wrong, he wants us to go to Jesus. So um, I don't know what it was. When I was a kid, I was just fascinated with the Statue of Liberty. And so, it, and, you know, the Statue of Liberty, they started building it in 1876. It was finished in 1886. And so the centennial was uh, 1986. And so I was a teenager, and they made a big deal out of it. And I just remember, I don't even know how I did this because I was a teenager, but I ordered something uh, I ordered these coins, these commemorative coins for the Statue of Liberty. And on the back of the coins, it has a phrase um, that's on the statue, and it's just part of the phrase, and I, I always forget it. But it says something like, um, uh, what does it say? Something about bringing you, you're, you're tired and you're poor and you're huddled masses yearning to breathe free, you know? And it's such a beautiful thing. And I remember in the early 2000s, I got to go visit the Statue of Liberty, which was great. Um, but there's a verse in the Bible that, to me, is kind of like the Statue of Liberty verse, but Jesus said it. Because in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And I just love that verse, the idea that Jesus wants to lift the burdens off of us. And he doesn't want us to wait. He wants us to bring those things to him first. He doesn't want some Hail Mary pass at the end. He wants us to start with him. And so if you're here today and you are burdened and you are struggling, learn from Mary. She went straight to Jesus. She went straight to Jesus with whatever the issue was. And that's what we need to do as well. Third thing I want us to learn is this, is the idea that Jesus wants to bring good in our lives, as well as take away the bad. One commentator I, I, I read said this, and he just said it better than I could say it. He said, what John wants us to see here is not that Jesus once on a day turned some water pots of wine or water into wine. He wants us to see that whenever Jesus comes into life, there comes a new quality which is like turning water into wine. 
Without Jesus, life is dull and stale and flat. When Jesus comes into life, life becomes vivid and sparkling and exciting. Jesus came to, to save us and to show us what's possible when we're following him. I don't know that Jesus really cared too much about turning the water into wine. But it does let us know that Jesus is concerned about the ordinary things in our lives. The things that are big and the things that are little. Jesus is concerned about them both. The last thing I want us to notice is right at the end, it talks about how Jesus revealed the glory of his Father in heaven. Our lives ought to reveal the glory of our Father in heaven, just like Jesus did. And so my question for us this morning, my question for you is this, does your life reflect the glory of God to the world around you? Does your life reflect the glory of God to the world around you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this chance, Lord, to be here, to look at this passage, to think about Jesus at a wedding and what that would look like. And yet, Lord, most of all, what, what I want us to get today, Lord, is, is bringing, just bringing everything to you and knowing that you care. Lord, I pray that as we leave this church today and as we go throughout our week, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a reflection of your glory. I pray that people would see that there is something different about us because you are in our lives. Not because of anything we're able to do, not because of any good in us, but they would see you in our lives. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at wvcch.org or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day. Forget all my rebellion